Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. Under the gun, a wave of violence fueled by drug gangs is paralyzing Ecuador. A journalist describes the chilling scene in Quito and the hostage crisis that is still unfolding. Veiled threats, the Taliban detains women and girls for wearing, quote, bad hijabs. An Afghan women's rights activist says it's just the latest escalation in the government's war against women. Ice, ice, maybe. Many of the people in West Dawson, Yukon, don't believe the government is going to come through with its promise to build a crucial ice bridge. But that doesn't mean they've given up on getting where they need to go. PowerPoint. St. Paul, Minnesota swears in a racially diverse new city council made up entirely of women under 40, one of whom talks to us about being part of history. Tearing a stripe off them, the coach of the Toronto Raptors expressed his contempt of court last night, did he ever, after the refs awarded the Lakers 23 free throws in the fourth quarter and the Raptors just two. And remains to never be seen again. When a private company announced its moon mission was off, it was also saying that the human remains on board will drift in space for all eternity, which may be cosmos for concern. As it happens, the Wednesday edition, radio that brings new meaning to celestial bodies. Masked gunmen storming a live television broadcast, prison guards and police officers murdered, the images shared on social media, tanks and troops in city streets. The images coming out of Ecuador this week are stark and disturbing as the country struggles to bring a wave of violence under control. The impending transfer of a jailed gang leader to a higher security facility appears to have sparked the fighting. Monica Almeida is an independent journalist and the co-founder of the Ecuadorian press freedom organization Fundamiedos. We reached her in Quito, Ecuador. Monica, Ecuador's president, Daniel Noboa, is saying your country is at war with drug gangs. What are you seeing on the streets of Quito? Yeah, the streets of Quito today were uh, almost as if we were in the first day of covid uh, when uh, everything was closed and uh, really like it was like the close down mm-hmm. it was like that today in the in the in the capital and in the main cities of the country I, uh, most of the people decided to go, to pass on um, uh, to work online mm-hmm. and main main magazines were open and main main shops were open but every but everybody was like kind of careful and um it was like a situation where everybody is waiting that the government and the um, military act and try and, and control and regain the control of the country. What we have uh, lived from 
Monday afternoon till yesterday and maybe this morning was like a little bit like a guerra de guerrillas. There were like small attacks like in different warfare. parts of the country, different provinces of the country with uh, uh, cars that uh, exploded with uh, the incursion of uh, a members of one gang in a TV station. And that's why it was it became really like a, a world news or what the other but the the main problem now are the the the, the prisons of in the country it sounds monica that people are terrified yes yes i mean we are we are terrified i mean we know that it's is not gonna be we hope it's not gonna be so bad but it's like it's better to be at home it's better to be at home it's better to be calm it's better it's better not to uh go outside and leave leave the 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 army and the police mm-hmm. to regain control and to take uh, these gangs uh, to capture them and bring them to the judges that that's what the Ecuadorian yeah. wants you're a journalist it was quite something to, to watch just the short video of it um, they don't seem like a sophisticated group but they were able to gain control for it for a short amount of time of this station what did you think when you saw that well it was it was horrible I mean even before we saw the video we knew what was happening because I'm an, an investigative journalist and we have a uh, a chat with other investigative journalists and there there was one working there and she, she and it's an international group and she gave us the alert and, and we were at that moment we were so worried about and, and she was saying I'm locked in the in the bathroom and then one minute later she then we saw the video and she was on the floor so it it's horrible it's horrible and and well, and the thing is, it's really like strange. There were thir- thirteen guys getting inside. They were armed. They among the group, there were two boys that are fifteen years old. That are fifteen years old. So it's right crazy to think that these guys got in. And but we don't know what exactly they wanted because they didn't have like a written message. You know, when yeah. you see these kind of things, like let's say, like a, a guerrilla taking control of a newspaper or a TV or a TV or a station, it's because they want you to read something. Yeah. They want you to send a message. But in this case, they it was like something failing the coordination. Maybe the boss was not there. Something happened, and at the end. The police arrived very quickly, and and they just left the the the, the arms, and they could be uh, detained. We know that a, about 130 staff at a prison are still being held hostage. Exactly. Is there any sense at I this point that, that authorities are getting things under control? I think that that's the worst thing that we have now is these 139 people retained in the in the prisons and um there is no solution yet and uh, we journalists has been asking for this information from monday monday night and uh only today they 
uh, were able to recognize what's going on. So the, one of the main problems of all this is that the, uh, the Ecuadorian state doesn't control the prisons. And it's very well known that if you are a leader uh, of one of these gangs and you are, uh, you are in prison, it seems that it, it's, it's more convenient for you because you are there, you have phones, you can get out when you want, and you can empower your gang. Before we let you go, Monica, uh, what do you think needs to be done to end the crisis? I don't think this is a, this is a crisis that, that's going to end. Uh, look at Colombia and look at Mexico, and I think that uh, narcotraffic it's a, it's a global problem that uh, need uh, that needs a, a global solution. Because uh, and of course it doesn't mean that the Ecuadorian government has to regain control of the Ecuadorian territory, of course, but the the really like the the main problem. Is the is that the the cocaine? It's a it's a product that uh, everybody wants to buy mm-hmm. in the in in and uh, that it's uh, it represents millions and millions of dollars. And once you have you are in that uh, market, the thing is that you operate in all the other illegal markets. Monica, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Monica Almeida is an independent journalist. We reached her in Quito, Ecuador. In an ordinary year, people in West Dawson, Yukon, would be able to cross over the Yukon River into Dawson City by car by now. It's the second week of January, after all, so the ice in that section of the river is typically thick enough for a government-sanctioned ice bridge. But this year, that ice bridge still isn't up and running, which has left those living across the river to find other ways over and into town. Mike Irwood lives in Sunnydale, a subdivision in West Dawson, and that's where we reached him. Mike, I know you work across the Yukon River in Dawson City. So what is your commute like right now? Uh, so I'm actually getting back and forth to town on a fat bike right now. And it's about seven kilometers if I'm going all the way to town. And uh, that involves taking two different bush trails through the woods. So for my place, I take one trail to get down to the Yukon River, go across the frozen Yukon River, take another trail through the woods to connect to the Klondike River, then across the Klondike River. And on the other side of the Klondike River, there's a highway that I can connect to there that takes me to uh, to Dawson City. A lot of your neighbors uh, are using snowmobiles to make the same kind of crossing. What do they think of your tactics? Uh, everyone here more or less thinks I'm nuts. Um, this, uh, everyone else pretty much thinks I should cave in and just buy a snowmobile. It's been kind of a stubborn thing on my part. I was told when I first moved here that I couldn't get by without a snowmobile. And, uh, I took that as a challenge rather than a sensible piece of advice. And, uh, so eight years later, I'm, I'm really insisting now that I don't need it. Why hasn't the ice bridge been constructed yet? So normally we count on the river freezing 
in front of town. Uh, there, there's a point where there's a road on the west side of the river that if the right ice jams in the right place, you can drive across and connect to another road on the town side. And basically, if the ice does not jam in that exact spot, the government can't build a road there. There are these kinds of hurdles often. You know, we hear these these stories and we've reported on them before as well. But what's different from, from your perspective of living there all those years? What's different this year? Well, I mean, normally we, you know, I've been here eight winters. Four of those, we haven't had the government ice road because it hasn't jammed in the right place for it. But uh, this is the first winter I think I've seen where we have no vehicle access to town because in other years where it's jammed here, the Klondike River has has also frozen over in such a way that we can construct our own drivable road across there. So it's usually just a matter of community members on the west side making our own non-government sanctioned road. But uh, the really warm weather this year and just the way that the ice jammed uh, means that we can't even put it, put our own vehicle road in. Yeah, People were trying, right, to build their own? Yeah, well, there was one attempt made. Some friends of mine went down and uh, cut off a chunk of shelf ice. Uh, so, you know, the river also freezes from the sides. So they cut off a chunk of ice from one of the sides and tried to swing that around to jam at the right spot to make a drivable road. But uh, yeah, it didn't didn't quite work. And I know uh, some folks are still planning to try and do that again at some point. So that it's a possibility that that could work um, later on. But uh, yeah, it, it didn't work out so well the first time it was tried. It's a really big gap that we're trying to span there. As much as people may like the adventure of it, what kind of strategy goes into planning your day and what you're doing and not doing when you're in this situation? Um, a lot of different things. I mean, you need to kind of assess the river on a daily basis. You know, when we have the government-sanctioned road, they go out and they flood that road um, with water pumps for, you know, a few weeks until the ice is really good and thick, and then you don't really have to worry about it. When we're using our own trails out there, you have to worry about overflow. So that's when when the water level in the river changes, it comes up and down. It can push up through cracks in the ice. So, you know, you'll go down some days and there'll be, you know, I've seen sometimes like six inches to a foot of standing water on top of the ice. And obviously you don't want to go walking through that because you'll get your feet wet and then you can get frostbite. So, uh, you know, you've got to kind of assess the river on a daily basis. You've got to really bundle up because the trail is long getting to town so you and you know there's often a lot of wind on the river too so it's a lot colder as soon as you get off of those bush trails through the woods so got to really bundle up for it and uh also you know it's not nearly as easy to haul things back and forth from town when you're uh when you don't have a vehicle to do it with yeah i mean how much can you carry on your bike uh <laughs> i mean i've carried a full propane tank like a 20 pound propane tank on my back before with groceries strapped to the back rack but it's very uncomfortable. I also stock up pretty heavily in the fall. But what I'm just thinking about people in more dire circumstances, if there was an emergency. I mean, I, I think about that every year. I'm actually on uh, the emergency response team over here. And yeah, it's it's concerning because, you know, if you had somebody with a serious medical emergency, and I mean, this is true even in a year where the river freezes normally, we always have a period of time between boats getting pulled out of the water and the ice jamming enough to be thick enough to cross on where the only access to town is by helicopter. And it's not always possible to get one on short notice either. So it is, uh, it's definitely a concern if anything uh, serious happened over here. 
the Yukon government has said it is still hopeful. An ice bridge is still possible this season. What's your sense of things? Um, I think that's kind of an absurd thing to say. <laughs> um, I actually find it pretty frustrating that that's still the government's stance because I think it's either... I mean, the only thing that that makes me think is either it's a it's kind of a cynical attempt to say that they're going to do something they don't have any intention of doing or they just genuinely don't understand the conditions here and the way the river's freezing. Mike, thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you. Mike Irwood lives in Sunnydale, Yukon. That's where we reached him. Yesterday, on the stage of a performing arts center in St. Paul, a group of seven women made history. They were sworn in as the Minnesota Capitol's new city council, the first ever all-female council. They're all Democrats. Four of the seven are newcomers, including Anika Bowie. Today is her first full day on the job. We reached her in St. Paul, Minnesota. Council member Bowie, there is a photo that I saw of of the new council, uh, and it's quite a moment captured. Can you take us inside what it was like yesterday on stage? Yes, that moment was heartwarming um, for myself and my colleagues. You know, I um, perceived to have that picture framed and um, look at that picture and provide hope in a time of you know, discouragement, um, and also hopefully, you know, that um, picture in that moment um, brings light, especially in a time of darkness. It was a moment of us just taking time to uh, take a breath. Uh, we said a prayer together. Council member Johnson led us in a prayer, and uh, we just, you know, that one last time that we have to gather and hold each other up. And what this endeavor would be, really just acknowledging the hard work it took to get here, but also the hard work it's going to take for us to um, lead and govern together for the next four years. There have been other all-female councils, as I understand it, but the fact, you know, that you're all under 40, six women of color, uh, it's you've been called the youngest and most racially diverse council uh, in in the U.S. And your mayor, St. Paul Mayor Melvin Carter, uh, has pointed out, you know, back in 2008, when he was sworn in as a councillor at that time, he was the only person of color on stage. There was only one woman. What do you think brought things in St. Paul to this moment, to this point and your council? Yeah, I think there's been a larger conversation, you know, that's happened over the years. I think um, especially being sworn in the same year as a presidential election has really revved things up in terms of the necessity of having women's voices in seats of power, um, particularly around um, all of us um, also are pro-choice. Um, women, and um, that's something that, you know, we don't really foresee to come across our desk, but in our, you know, connection to, you know, the larger movement um, for um, reproductive justice, I think uh, big issues like that, big issues like climate change, uh, you know, the Twin Cities was the home of the murder of George Floyd, and at that time I was 
uh, vice president for the Twin Cities NAACP and is the youngest um, across the nation. Um, so I think there's been um, you know, really this macro level of movement building in so many different areas that really propelled um, for such a time like this, right, to where people have developed appetites to want to see um, more young people energized um, to help tackle some of the larger issues that's happening around the nation. Do you all feel that you're sending a broader message to the entire country? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. We're we're really bold with that. You know, I think that is the, when I was, you know, running for office, I did not anticipate that it was going to be as bold of a message and, um, and as um, inspirational. What I think it's something that I hope um, that other, other leaders across the nation and their cities, whether it's school board or, you know, running for Congress, um, that they feel inspired to work particularly together um, amongst women um, and women of color when it comes to um, leadership. There are also the realities, as you well know, I'm sure, of misogyny, sexism, harassment that that women face, but specifically women in in politics. Have you been hit with any of that in these early days? (laughs) Oh, yeah, a lot. (laughs) Um, All the time, um, you know, during the inauguration, it was um, a poet who uh, gave a very remarkable poem and I was almost in tears because one of the lines her poems was saying you know what should I wear how would I be accepted and like just every single endless question you know um, as a woman you know I ask myself before I go into places um, usually spirits from the you know the, the the reality of I haven't seen anyone you know that looks like me in these spaces I've experienced you know people continuously, hey, what are you here doing? <laughs> and I have to, you know, introduce myself as, you know, I'm, you know, the city council member. I get references around being so young. I receive references around, well, why are you running for office? Don't you want to have kids one day? And it's, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, it's been it's been a challenging situation, but I I don't allow that to distract me from the mission. And also, I've been used to being the only woman. I am the oldest, and I'm the only daughter in my family. Um, and you know, I just you had some training. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. How did your family feel yesterday to see you on stage? <sighs> It was a really proud moment. Now when I call my dad just for simple things, they're like, hey, are you home? He just can't get off the phone without telling me every time how proud he is of me. Oh. You know, my dad tells stories of he goes to the grocery store and people flag him down saying, aren't you Anika's um, dad? So now he's just, you know, he's no longer dad. He's just Anika's dad. It's been remarkable just their support, you know, I don't come from a political background or my family isn't involved in politics at all. Um, they're just really small bricks and mortar business owners. Just to see the humble beginnings into now, um, I think um, they are in awe of just mm-hmm. like, this moment taking place. And I just appreciate them um, also just showing up for everything. Yeah. So I promised to them, I was like, hey, for the inauguration, that's, that's it at this point now. It's just like 
you know, I'm getting ready to get to work and so they can continue living their normal lives. <laughs> Council Member Bowie, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you for having me now. That was St. Paul, Minnesota Council Member Anika Bowie. A 16-year-old says she was arrested in her English class, thrown into a police truck, and lashed on her feet and legs. And her story, reported by The Guardian, is just one of many that's come out of Kabul over the last week. Reports and videos of women and girls saying they were called infidels and arrested by the Taliban for wearing, quote, bad hijabs, unquote. It appears to be a new, brutal crackdown on women two and a half years after the Taliban regained control of Afghanistan. Fauzia Kufi is a former Afghan politician and a women's rights advocate. We reached her in London. Fauzia, when the Taliban talks about a, quote, bad hijab, what's your sense of what the definition of that might be? Well, unfortunately, the Taliban use the woman outfit and hijab as a means of completely erasing women from the public sphere. Um, uh, There is no such a thing as good or bad hijab in Islam that they are referring to. And women of Afghanistan have always covered their head, according to the definition of hijab in Islam. But Taliban have always had problem with women. In fact, they have expedited their war against women. You know, um, they since they came gradually, they have increased their sanctions and uh, their restrictive measures. Now to like massively and in a group arbitrarily arrest women has no space in our culture. Neither it has space in our religion. So it's a war against women by Taliban. What are you hearing about what has been happening on the streets of Afghanistan to women? It's increasing. And they, um, the Taliban gave contradictory messages. Um, some of their spokespersons say, well, these are beggars. We are collecting them from the streets to feed them. Then obviously the other spokespersons say, well, we did arrest these people. We do arrest them because they are not appropriately scarfed or they do not wear appropriate hijab as the Taliban definition. It has created an atmosphere of fear. I think that's what the Taliban want to do, create fear and then rule. Um, You know, I think what I'm hearing is all the messages and the voices of these women who are despair and um, full of emotions and crying and and lack of future and darkness. And it's also the same with us because you know, we never imagined that after 20 years of investing blood and treasure on Afghanistan, we go back to, to a location where women are, you know, used as a tool of power by these groups. Why do you think this is happening now? Well, I think because conflicting priorities and our collective short-term memory is very short. Um, so we have we had the Ukraine war, which obviously pushed Afghanistan issue to the corner now. Palestine um, Gaza war, which again pushed Afghanistan issue to the you know even further less priority, and also I think there is a division among the international community, the Security Council. I was briefing uh, the Security Council early December in Aria Formula, and I could see how much division there is among uh, the Security Council members on their engagement with Taliban. There are some countries in the region who want to engage regardless of their Taliban treatment of women and other population in Afghanistan. The, the global north, obviously, they have their own approach. 
But I don't know how much leverage they have after sending all this money to Taliban and withdrawing from Afghanistan. How much leverage really the global north countries like the Western world have on Taliban anymore? What could the international community do? I mean, what would the the Taliban actually respond to to roll back what we're seeing being done to women? I think Taliban have been emboldened by the engagement, by different approach and engagement with them. So the regional country have one approach. They are economically engaged with Taliban. They have their contracts signed with Taliban. So the Taliban do not see a need to listen to global north. So I think, first of all, unity at the international community on a strategy about Afghanistan. Second, unless there is no political change of ecosystem in Afghanistan, a change of political ecosystem, where there is a government somehow accountable to the people, the Taliban will not change because for now they see themselves as the only victorious force in Afghanistan who they claim that they have defeated NATO, they have defeated Americans and Western world. So they are, a power is God's gift to them, that's how they see it, and they want to rule the way they want. And therefore, in order to you know, uh, put some level of pressure and leverage over Taliban. I think the Western world should support um, the space for women movements, for political opposition, and support the political process which would result to a change in political ecosystem in Afghanistan. In the meantime, what what can women in Afghanistan do? Women in Afghanistan continue to resist, as you can see, under very mm-hmm. difficult circumstances, because uh, culturally also... If a woman is imprisoned in Afghanistan, the whole society will regard her as guilty. So for Taliban, I mean, they have created an, an environment that every woman in Afghanistan is regarded guilty to be, to, so the women need to prove themselves innocent. Um, however, this perspective is now changing. There is more and more resistance, as you can imagine. Small groups, obviously, not big groups, because the situation in Afghanistan is very unique and very different from the rest of the world. There is weapon, there is gun, the Taliban are using that against women, against anybody who speak against them. But they are trying still. I think there should be more support for women-led organizations that are working in Afghanistan, who are working from abroad. There should be more direct support to these women activists who lost their job, who lost their income. They need to be empowered. They need to be listened to. Uh, they need to be brought to the tables because unfortunately what we see nowadays also is those people who have you know, double passport or dual citizenships, and they do not face really any serious challenge by traveling to Afghanistan. They are invited to international community platforms to speak, while those women who are mainly affected on the ground, mm-hmm. lost their job, lost everything they had in their lives, suppressed to hell. And I, only I can imagine, because I have gone through those experience in the first time of Taliban, and listening to their voices I receive early, every day, early morning, to their painful voices, I can imagine what their life experiences, they need to be empowered and brought to the international stages so that they can share their story and hold Taliban into account. You're getting messages from women every day? They call you? Is that what you mean? Oh my gosh, not only every day, every hour. And their demands are endless. Obviously, I understand. Their demands is from, you know, helping them to leave the country to just expressing their feeling and still expecting us to do the same thing that we could do when we were in power. We mentioned that that you're in London now. But you said you wish you you were in Afghanistan, despite everything, despite the, the pressures. Why? I honestly sometimes prefer, I wish even in Afghanistan in the prison, but at least be with my sisters in Afghanistan. I sincerely wish I was there just to feel their pain. Although I feel it from abroad, from a distance, because I was there, I experienced 
everything that my sisters experienced mm. now in the first time the Taliban were in power. And throughout the 20 years I was attacked, many other women experienced the same. But I think being there gave them some some level of hope. But it's difficult politically because I cannot, I do not want to, you know, give legitimacy to Taliban by my presence there for now. That's why a political process is important for us to be able to go back to our country and work from there and amplify the voices of my sisters from there and be with them. Fauzia, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. Fauzia Kufi is a former Afghan politician. She's in London. I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohith Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. Last night, the Toronto Raptors lost to the L.A. Lakers by a single point. For fans, that is frustrating. But what coach Darko Ryakovic is feeling goes beyond frustration. What happened tonight, this is completely BS. This is shame. Shame for the referees, shame for the league to allow this. 23 free throws for them, and we get two free throws in the, in the fourth quarter. Like, how to play the game. I, all, I understand uh, respect for all stars and all of that, but we have star players on our team as well. How's possible is Scotty Barnes, who is all-star caliber player in this league, he goes every single time to the rim with force and trying to get, get uh, to, to the rim without flopping and, and not trying to get foul calls. He gets two uh, free throws for the whole game. How is that possible? How are you going to explain that, that to me? They had to win tonight? If that's, if that's the case, just let us know so we don't show up for the game. That was Toronto Raptors coach Darko Ryakovic calling out the referees in a post-game press conference last night. As you heard, the referees awarded the LA Lakers 23 free throws in the fourth quarter. The Raptors were awarded two. And that discrepancy has coach Darko and Raptors fans calling foul. Chelsea Late is the editor-in-chief of Raptors HQ. We reached her in Toronto. Chelsea, Coach Darko uh, held nothing back, to say the least. Do you think a fine is a foregone conclusion? Is he going to be fined for sure? I can say he's most definitely going to be fined. It's just when they decide to announce it and how much he ends up getting fined in the end. And how much do you think he'll be fined? Um, Last year, Fred Van Vliet was fined $30,000 for what he said about um, this particular referee. So um, based on just the tone and what Darko said last night, I could see it being a little bit higher than that, maybe 35 or higher. So we'll just have to see. They do this by a case-by-case basis, though. So there's no set number. Did you expect the coach to react that way? I mean, it was a little bit expected and also just um, I agreed with him. I mean, it was clearly blatantly one-sided in terms of how many free throw attempts the Lakers were getting. They got 23 in in the fourth quarter as opposed to the Raptors two. And that decides games, especially when it's close games like this. And so he was, you know, in the right to 
to defend his team. What he said, though, I mean, he seems to be hinting that, that it wasn't just a bad game and some bad calls, that there's rigging happening. That's the opinion of, of whoever decides to agree with him or not. I mean, I, I personally don't think that the NBA is trying to like rig games, but I do think that sometimes the referees may have a little bit of um, preferential treatment. You think about who they were playing, the Lakers, mm-hmm. you think about all the star power on that team. You think, you know, it's it's just everybody knows that there's some players who get foul calls more than other players. And, um, you know, maybe it's not a whole league-wide conspiracy, but sure, sometimes that stuff happens. And so he was he was calling that out. And maybe for that, he'll get fined a little bit more. But at the end of the day, you know, your game is being decided through these foul calls. And when you watch the tape, there were some some really bad calls being made. So I don't blame what he said. What's your read on this ref? Last year when it was Fred Van Vliet's situation, the stats clearly showed that, you know, he was giving Fred Van Vliet a couple more texts than maybe some other players. I don't know if that was something personal. I don't know if it just was random. Um, And maybe he does have some sort of bias over the Raptors or even bias over the Lakers. I'm not entirely sure. So, I mean, no harsh, you know, sentiments towards that ref personally, but um, I just think it's getting to the point where sometimes it's it's a problem in these games. And unfortunately, it turns into, you know, not a good product because we're there to watch basketball and then it ends up turning into, you know, stuff like this. What is he what is Coach Darko usually like at these postgame conferences? He's usually extremely positive, extremely polite. He always tries to spin everything and make sure that, you know, despite the fact that it might be a, a negative thing that we're talking about, whether that's a loss or how a player played, he always tries to to spin it and end it on a positive note. And so hearing him talk like that last night was definitely a little surprising um, because he's usually so polite and positive. Um, but again, the situation warranted it. And I personally was glad that he went out of character a little bit because it was a situation that it needed to happen. It sends a signal to his team too, right? To his players. Yeah, I mean, especially like he he called out Scotty Barnes in particular. And when, you know, a team is trying to build their franchise around someone like Scotty Barnes, who's a young star, who's growing and still maturing and developing into the player he's going to end up being, you need to have trust that your coach has your back. And, um, you know, I think that probably was good confirmation for Scotty that Darko has his back no matter what. I'm sure you've seen L.A. Lakers star LeBron James didn't see anything wrong with last night's game no controversy in his view he said quote I felt like they fouled and we didn't what do you think yeah um I mean that's what you have to say in those situations he's obviously not going to bad mouth um when his team won obviously Mm -hmm. you're not going to waste the money for a fine when you won so I think you know he had every right to say that and that was I guess his perspective of the game but um, you have to pick and choose, especially in a league that can decide to find you on the smallest thing um, to, to pick, pick your battles. And last night, obviously, he didn't need to battle because his team won. Tonight, the Raptors play the Clippers, the L.A. Clippers. What do you mm-hmm. think the, the energy is going to be like, the Raps energy? Oh, I mean, hopefully they kind of see the response to last night and it kind of fuels them um, to play well again. I think the the thing that we keep going back to about last night is that they played really, really well, despite the fact that they lost. They deserved to win that game. And so hopefully that kind of 
anger turns into another good game, another high-scoring game. They play good defense because in the end, the Clippers are better than the Lakers, and so it's going to be a harder game to win. Um, There's a lot of history with a lot of these players. Kawhi Leonard is on this team. Norm Powell is on this team. You have James Harden. So um, it'll definitely be um, a battle, but hopefully the Raptors will kind of have some fire under them now after last night. Chelsea, thank you. No worries. Thank you. Chelsea Late is the editor-in-chief of Raptors HQ. She's in Toronto. There's only one song that's really important to us, and that's our... That's our theme song. We did send it to you before. You haven't had a lot of time to practice, but uh, if you wouldn't mind, we'd love to hear some. I'll I'll give it a try. Honestly, it was a hard one to memorize. If I had more time, I could get it. That was pretty good. If you didn't catch last night's show, that was Lulu Lotus whistling the As It Happens theme song to Neil. Pretty impressive, especially since Ms. Lotus only had about an hour to practice. Oh, and did I mention she was whistling through her nose? Ms. Lotus was just awarded the Guinness World Record for loudest nose whistle. She told Neil she started honing her craft at an early age and had already recognized her special talent by the time she was seven years old, which is nothing to sneeze at, although I'm sure she did a lot of sneezing. Ms. Lotus reminded us of another famous whistler from our archives who made his radio debut at an even earlier age. From 1987, here's former host Michael Enright speaking with Jane Fisher of Rogerston, Wales, about her 10-month-old son, Jason. Hello, Mrs. Fisher. How's Jason? Okay, he's right by me, but yeah. He is, is he? Is that Jason whistling? Yes. (laughs) That's terrific. How old was he when he first started whistling? Seven months old. (laughs) Can you hear that? Yeah. (laughs) How how did it happen? Did he just start whistling one day and and you noticed it or what? Yes, he just just started, you know. And uh, ever since then, he hasn't stopped. You hear him again. <laughs> he's stopping, he's starting and stopping all the time. How did... He doesn't have any teeth yet, I understand. No, you haven't got one tooth. <laughs> no, no one tooth. Hi, Jason. How did he learn, do you think? Um, well, I don't know, really. We had a budgie first. And um, his father got pigeons. I don't know what it really is, you know. So was he copying the budgie, do you think? But he could be really, or could Kevin the whistler pigeons in as well? See his father, and he took him up there a lot when he was six, seven months. So unless it starts, you know, it could be because they're two different whistles, see, isn't it? Can you whistle yourself? Did you ever whistle him to sleep or anything? No, I can't. <laughs> I can't do anything. <laughs> He's going like crazy. I can hear him in the background. Yeah, you hear him? Yeah. <laughs> oh, but then he'll stop, and then he'll start again. He must be quite a quite a star uh, on your street. Is he a big hit with the neighbors? Oh yeah, they love him. They think the world of him. They come round to hear him. We 
Flynn, you know. Can, can we hear Jason whistle again? Um, only if he will do it now. Oh, I know. How do you start him? I'm... Let me see. You could have a whistle? You could have a whistle? He's right by me here now, but I don't think he, um... Hi, Jason. Jason. Hi. Maybe he's still tired. I'm still tired. <laughs> He's off again now. Sorry. Well, listen, we'll let we'll let him go and and wet his whistle if he wants. Thank you for talking to us. Okay, then. Good night. Good night. From 1987, Michael Enright speaking with Jane Fisher about her 10-month-old son Jason's uncanny ability to whistle. In Greek mythology, Artemis is the goddess of the hunt, and at NASA headquarters, the hunt is shaping up to be a long one. Yesterday, the space agency announced a nearly year-long postponement of its Artemis II mission, which is set to return humans to the moon for the first time since 1972. Canadian astronaut Jeremy Hansen will serve as mission specialist on that voyage, but he'll have to wait, and the crew of the subsequent Artemis III mission will be waiting even longer until at least September 2026. Chris Hadfield is a Canadian astronaut and writer who has flown three missions to space. We reached him at the airport in Denver, Colorado. Chris Hadfield, the the safety and technical issues NASA is citing for for these delays, what do they signal to you? Is is this where a mission like this should be at this stage? Well, it's been 50 years or more since human beings have gone to the moon. So uh, we really want to do it right. We've got to be careful. And uh, we flew a test mission a year ago uh, with nobody on board and learned a lot of things there. And, and, you know, it's not an airline. It's not like, you know, we've got a specific time and date that is absolutely necessary to launch. We will launch as soon as uh, we think everything's safe enough to have a good chance of success. So, yeah, short answer to your question, Neil, is I think things are going along well. Even with when we talk about the significance of some of the things they've highlighted, your electronics and the life support system that would keep the astronauts alive? Well, yeah, I mean, that's what spaceships do, right? I mean, (laughs) uh, every single thing that goes wrong on a spaceship is related to keeping astronauts alive. And and things fail all the time. They fail every day. It's just a big machine. And and that's the reason you do a test flight is Mm -hmm. to wring out problems and sort of potential failures and, and then work on good solutions to launch with as healthy a ship as possible. So... I mean, if it was everything was perfect, I'd, I'd be suspicious. If you are Jeremy Hansen and, and his crewmates, what do you think they're feeling right now? Relieved or disappointed? Or maybe both? Well, neither. Um, it's just a normal part of the process. I mean, when you're trusted to go do this thing, you want to do it right. Jeremy's a, a combat fighter pilot. And it's he's been an astronaut for 14 years. And, and so uh, another six months or a year or whatever it's going to be, it doesn't really matter. Um, this is time and preparation and development and mission advancement and, and making sure we optimize our chances. There was nothing magic about that previous date on the calendar, and there's nothing magic about this one. And this one, by note, there's, there's very little chance we'll launch on this date either, but you have to set a date. Mm. And I, I don't think any of my space launches launched on time. And, and this is as hard as it gets. 
sending four human beings not 400 kilometers away like I went, but 400,000 kilometers away. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, for Jeremy and his crew, this is this is life as normal. And uh, and they are four great representatives of humanity. Yeah. I'm super proud to they're know also, them. And, they're uh, also human beings. There might be a little bit of disappointment. No, they're going to the moon. <laughs> <They're> <laughs> really, the right, they want to get up there to... safely. But, I mean, to, to wait another, so much can happen in six months or a year, right? With individuals even, so. No, 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 I think you're looking at it wrong, Neil. <laughs> they're not passengers who are waiting for the airline to take sure, them off no. the ground. And yeah, they're I recognize that. Because it got yeah. delayed. They are the crew of this mission. They're working on all of those systems with all of the engineers. They're part of the process right mm-hmm. now. Uh, the real disappointment is if you get to orbit and something is wrong with the vehicle so that you you can't complete the mission. That's the disappointment, not not another small temporal delay after decades of preparation. The, the previous U.S. administration, there was a sort of sense of urgency infused into into getting astronauts back on the moon, you know, when Artemis first started in late 2017, when the program began. Are you concerned uh, that that kind of urgency from U.S. leaders at that time helped move this along too quickly? Well, politicians come and go, um, and, and, uh, and the electoral cycles are going to continue to happen. But, but meanwhile, we have had a space station up continuously with people on board for uh, 23 years. We have put uh, 24 people who have left Earth orbit, 12 of whom have walked on the moon. Uh, we have four crew in training now with a vehicle that is in, being built in order to take them to the moon. Uh, we've got crews getting ready to be assigned to walk on the surface of the moon. And we've got robots on the way to the moon. So uh, you could drive yourself crazy worrying about the things that you have no control over. And I think it's really good for NASA and the astronauts to be uh, focused hard on the things that they can control. I mean, I was an astronaut for 21 years, and I was NASA's director of operations in Russia. Uh, I'm aware of all the political vagaries that happen, but job one is mission execution, and that's that's what everybody's focused on. Those who are who are not as excited about space exploration as you and many others are uh, around the world who who point to this delay but also the commercial lunar landing, the issues with that uh, earlier this week, which we've been reporting on as well. They point to those headlines and say this should all be left to private enterprise rather than a taxpayer-funded agency. What do you say in response to that? Um, Well, there's always a role for uh, governments and there's a role for private industry. Um, The things that uh, further humanity, um, that that push back the edges of our understanding of things like... uh, the CERN particle accelerator or the, um, I don't know, the snow lab that's in Sudbury or, or the telescopes that we help build to try and push back science. That's not the job of private industry because they can't make a profit at it. But some things, uh, they get in transition where, uh, you know, like all the research and money that was spent on developing aviation that then lays the groundwork so that businesses can move in later, that's happening in space. And it's, it's pretty happened pretty exquisitely in unmanned spaceflight, satellites and things. Uh, that's very much the purview now of, of commercial companies. But exploring the moon, putting human beings on the moon, exploring the rest of the universe, understanding the very nature of, of dark matter and dark energy, that still takes us collectively to agree that this is something that humanity needs to 
work on together. It's always been that way. That's what exploration is. It's always been like that. This is just the current uh, manifestation of it. Chris Hadfield, thank you for your time. Safe travels. Same, same to you, Neil. Safe travels. Chris Hadfield is a Canadian astronaut and writer whose latest book is The Defector. We reached him at the airport in Denver, Colorado. Doctors Without Borders, or MSF, is used to working in some of the most dangerous places in the world. But hospitals in Gaza have become unprecedentedly dangerous. The aid group says their doctors and staff have been forced to flee Al-Aqsa Hospital, the only functioning hospital in the central Gaza Strip, because of Israeli airstrikes and attacks. On Monday, a strike on the building in Khan Yunus, where MSF staff and family were sheltering, killed a staff member's five-year-old daughter. We have been trying to reach a doctor there, but phone service has been spotty. Today, we were sent this voice note by Carolina Lopez, MSF's project coordinator in Khan Yunus. So, of course, when uh, we got the news uh, that the shelter was hit, we contacted the Israeli authorities to ask um, about it. And they they had uh, from before, of course, the GPS coordinates, and it was a notified uh, shelter. We inform the Israeli authorities about where our uh, guest houses are, the hospitals where we work, the places where we are. So they they have all of this information. So, yeah, uh, this is what I can tell you by now. It is very difficult for me to explain my feelings. I feel a lot of things at the same time and a lot of confusion. I'm sad, I'm angry. I'm confused and I'm insecure as well. We we moved uh, the the staff, our colleagues from the shelter to the new shelter, and we did a meeting with them. And we had to explain that that this new shelter it was as well um, um, announced and notified to the Israeli authorities. And of course, they were asking if it was safe. And I cannot say to my staff that this place is safe. I mean, there's no safe place in Gaza. Um, And um, everybody's in shock about what has happened, of course. But it's getting more and more complicated for us to work when we cannot ensure the safety of our own staff. We cannot work in the hospitals that are around because they are not secure neither, because they cannot move from one place to another. Uh, because it's not secure, uh, it's, it's getting very, very complicated. So I feel a lot of things at the same time, and, but a lot of confusion, I think. That was MSF's Carolina Lopez, who sent a voice note from Khan Yunus about the situation on the ground after an Israeli strike on the group's shelter killed a staff member's five-year-old daughter.
they make decisions democratically, speak their own distinct dialects, and stick to their own social groups, all of which makes sperm whales a lot like human beings, except they do sound a bit different. Hal Whitehead is a professor of biology at Dalhousie University and the author of a new study on sperm whales published today in the Royal Society Open Science Journal. We reached him in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Hal, if any sperm whales are listening right now, and surely they they are, what would they be able to determine (laughs) about the whale or whales making those sounds we just heard? Well, they could... um First, they they could tell that these whales are from a particular clan. So that's like um, maybe a human nation. They could say these are this kind of whale. And secondly, they could say, oh, there's two whales there and they're communicating with each other. And they could probably go on to say lots of other things which we don't understand Mm -hmm. about the relationship between these two whales. And do they are they making that distinction solely on the sounds they hear, or are they recognizing them in other ways as well? Well, uh, I think a lot of it is sound, because vision doesn't travel very well underwater, uh, smell doesn't. So sound is really important to these guys. And what is the fact that they use different dialects, say to you, about how they live and interact? Well, it says a lot, because what happens is, we can have a bunch of sperm whales in a particular area and some communicate using a particular pattern of clicks and others with another pattern of clicks and we call those two different sets of whales clans Mm -hmm. and the members of each clan behave differently in a whole bunch of other ways how they move around how they babysit their calves and so on and uh, also they do not socialize with the, uh, the, the other form of whales. So they're socially exclusive. So it's a, maybe a little bit like uh, Montreal. And so the English <laughs> speak English, the French speak French, and they behave a bit differently and they socialize rather rarely. <laughs> These clans are also made up of female whales and their offspring. So what are the adult males doing? Well, the, the, the males, when they're very roughly 12, leave their mum and their mum's um, clan, uh, which are in the tropics and subtropics, and the males move to colder waters. And as they, uh, as they move polewards, they become less social, more solitary, and they get bigger and bigger and bigger, and they move to colder and colder waters. So here off Canada... We very rarely find female whales. It's just the males here. And if you go, the further you go north, um, the bigger. So off Nunavut, you find great big males. You've also written about how they're making decisions, it appears to you, based on your research, collectively. What did you learn there? Well, what we were looking at was how the whales move around. And these are nomadic creatures. They travel over huge swaths of ocean, but they have to make good decisions about where to go because their food is very patchy. Sometimes it's here, sometimes it's there, and so on. So a whole bunch of whales, and can be up to 70, have to decide collectively, we're going this way rather than that way. 
And so we've looked at how they've done that. And a lot of the time, it's a kind of slow, messy business. One starts moving this way, another oh, a little bit, another goes the other way, and then gradually they figure it out and off they go. So this isn't what, you know, spermals are a bit like uh, elephants in some ways. They, they have these female-based societies, but in elephants, there's a matriarch who usually says, this is what we do, and off everyone goes. And we, we don't typically find that. We find it's a slower, messier, more democratic business. And, uh, you know, that has the merits and flaws of democracy. It takes a while, but it more often than not produces the best solution. So given all these similarities, because I'm certainly hearing a lot, what lessons do you think, if any, we as humans should be taking from, from your research? Well, the... Um, as far as I can tell, the closest thing to the sperm whale clans are, you know, human uh, societies uh, on the large scale, so nations and, um, and so on, and vice versa. They should so be led by it. women? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> well, that's part of it, is that uh, we, we, we assume that in the sperm whales, that the, the, the females are, are the real thing, and males don't do much other than sperm. Um, now, we may be wrong because we were wrong with humans, or a lot of us were wrong. We thought, oh, it's all male-oriented and the males run the show and the females just hang around and produce babies. But now we know that's really wrong And in a lot of human societies. Females were the leaders, females were the innovators, females were driving things. So I sometimes wonder, well, maybe we're wrong with the sperm whales, too. We get it wrong the other way in assuming it's all females and the males just do the sperm. Did they surprise you as you did this research? A lot of things surprised me. I, I, I mean, just the, the, the clans themselves, the size of them. There's 20,000 animals in each one. The fact that they use these very, in some ways, simple sounds, patterns of clicks, to distinguish one plan from another. Yeah, a lot surprised me. It's been a wonderful scientific ride for me trying to figure all this stuff out. And we've got so much more to learn. It's been a pleasure listening to you talk about it as well, Hal. Thank you for your time. You're welcome. Hal Whitehead is a professor in the Department of Biology at Dalhousie University. We reached him in Halifax. Space is an endless void, and many believe death is an endless void. So, if, you know what? I'm a little worried that this is not a fun way to start a story. Can I get some music that's respectful of the grand mystery of the cosmos and the perplexing enigma of death? Ah, oh, that's, that's perfect. Now, as I was saying, um, is it scarier to imagine spending eternity drifting around in a void within a void or stuck in a box in the ground or in a dusty urn in a closet next to some unused rollerblades? Is this music working? I feel like it might still be maybe kind of a bummer. No? It's fun? Okay, great. 
Now, I bring all this up because of the Peregrine mission, which had a triumphant launch on Monday and untriumphant technical difficulties also on Monday. Now we know a fuel leak has prevented that moon lander from actually being a moon lander and turned it into more of a space floater. That's sad for the people behind the mission, obviously, but also for the loved ones of all the people whose remains are on board. Remains that were supposed to go to the moon, but will now drift around in the cosmos forever, or even longer. I'm talking about the cremated remains of writer Arthur C. Clarke, Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry, and Star Trek cast members James Doohan, DeForest Kelly, and Nichelle Nichols, Scotty, Dr. McCoy, and Lieutenant Uhura, respectively, among many others whose eternal resting place will now be an eternally orbiting place. So is that better than being in the ground or an urn? I guess those particular people would probably think so. Not that they'd be over the moon about it. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kirksal. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.